Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 53 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and today's episode is titled The Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, Expectations versus Reality. In episode 49, we discussed what we thought our upcoming Kangaroo Island trip was going to be like. Having never been there before, uh, and only done reading on the internet and at magazines and in journals, we had to try and figure out what this trip was going to be like. This episode looks at the trip itself and looks at what our expectations were uh, and compares that to the reality of the trip itself. We hope you enjoy. Now, one of the first things we talked about uh, from our expectations on this trip was the logistics that we had to go through as far as getting to Kangaroo Island and getting to the trailhead itself. We assumed that they were going to be difficult uh, living in Canberra uh, and in some respects they were, they were probably just a bit more arduous than difficult in itself. As mentioned in the previous episodes, Jill and I decided to drive our car to Adelaide uh, because we found that the airfares or the, the airlines were a bit, a bit bit expensive at Christmas time. We did actually want a car to use on the island rather than having to pay transport travel. Uh, and um, we wanted the ability to head off when we wanted to head off. Uh, and if we wanted to look around the island, having that vehicle would make it a bit easier. And I think that was probably the primary thing for me. It was about the convenience of having the vehicle. And uh, we also had a pretty limited amount of time. Uh, so we had to get there, do the, the trail um, and get back. So um, some of the schedules for planes and things weren't that convenient. We did need a vehicle on the island of some kind, or at least a pickup. And uh, having to wait for some of those things, we thought, you know, was in our circumstance, not good use of our time. So what that meant for us is living in Canberra, we had about a 12-hour drive uh, on Christmas Day to Adelaide. Uh, it was a perfect day to travel. <laughs> People were doing more important things, so there was almost nobody on the road. Um, yeah, and it was just, it was a really good drive, particularly across the Hay Plain. Um, if you've never driven across the Hay Plain before, put it on your bucket list as one of those things you, you need to do because it's quite a, a good drive driving on such flat and open country. Yeah, well, do it at least once. You wouldn't want to make a habit of it, I don't think. <laughs> I must admit, for us though, it was a tiring, uh, tiring sort of trip. It's something we used to do sort of semi-regularly when you were, were younger, but certainly as we've got older, we, we tend not to do those really long trips anymore. But we managed it quite well. Now, the first thing we're going to go through and look at is the general logistics of the trip itself or, and the trail itself, uh, and not in, in no particular order, but just how, sort of how they came to mind. The first thing that we would say is swimming ability is very limited on this trail. And in fact, the only real option for swimming on this trip is at, is at Hanson's Bay Beach, uh, which was on the second last day of the trip. 
uh, talking to the rangers, doing the induction at the start at the trailhead. Uh, they do warn you that the currents can be very strong. Uh, and as there are a number of breeding seal colonies on this island, there are also a lot of sharks. So um, you know, even though you're sort of travelling along an ocean for quite a lot of the trail, um, you can look but not integrate. At best, you sort of um, can sort of wade in, wade in the water with your uh, with your ankles. Uh, but certainly t- talking to people who have done the trip before, they said they get up to about ankle depth or about knee depth and they start really filling the drag uh, with the the rips. Uh, and uh, our first view of the ocean, uh, as we came out of uh, uh, the start early in the second day, you could actually see a rip um, actually just off to one side of the beach that was, uh, uh, for us that have actually spent a lot of time around the ocean, it was really obvious. Yeah, and it was quite large as as well. So, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. Everybody has this idea that they're going to um, going to swim uh, on, you know, at the end of days on the hike and so on. Um, partly, you're you know not always near the water, and uh, partly the conditions are not uh, ideal. And the number of uh, breeding seal colonies is actually. Uh, increasing as we understand so that's another reason not to now the other thing with this trail this trail is actually a class four and it's the 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 trail class ratings can be a bit difficult sometime the only reason this trail would be classed as a class four is the distance which is approximately about 61 65 kilometer mark certainly it's one of the easier trails we've done Um, at no stage uh, did I ever use tracking poles? I have an issue with coming down steep hills, uh, so we'll always tend to tra- carry tracking poles. Uh, and with the exception of a couple of short uphill sections on sand dunes, this was a really easy trail in comparison to something like, say, the Overland Track and even the much longer Larapinta Trail. Um, you know, even on the short sections on Larapinta, it's not unusual to use the, the hiking poles on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, there certainly weren't too many uh, steep uphill or steep uh, downhill uh, traverses. Um, and uh, I used my poles uh, when we were walking along um, uh, quite a quite a lengthy beach uh, in deep sand. Uh, that was probably the only time I used mine. Having said that, Kelly used hers all the time. Uh, you know, she's a, a new hiker, new multi-day hiker, um, and really appreciated the stability that the hiking poles gave her. And that brings us to the trail itself. The trail is reasonably well formed, but it is very natural. So the variation on the trail is um, the soil itself is reasonably sandy, so it's, a, it's actually quite a good trail inland. As you're getting towards the ocean, you start getting a lot of rock bedded into the trail. So you're, it's not sharp rock like it can be on Larapinta, uh, but it can be a bit hard underfoot. So you do want to make sure that whatever footwear you're wearing, you've got a reasonable bit of cushioning on your feet, particularly if you are carrying a heavier pack to take that into account. Trail distances, uh, and certainly the guidebooks that uh, that come with this trip, uh, do recommend doing the trail in a particular way. And we we vary this slightly, and I'll give I'll talk about the distances now. So day day one, twelve point one kilometres. Day two, twenty three point two kilometres. And the reason for that being our longest day is we actually did the additional spur trails 
uh, on that second day as opposed to the third day, which was the recommendation of the guidebooks. It was a very hot day that day. We'd started hiking fairly early, and we actually got into camp at about 11.30 that morning. So after lunch, uh, and it wasn't a particularly a hot day as we expected, we ended up doing those additional side trips, which made for uh, got the longer day out of the way fairly early. Day three, 14.2 kilometres. Day four, 15 kilometres. And day five, 7.6 kilometres. Now, one other thing I would say on day two, day two is was certainly the longest distance at 23.2 kilometres, but we had a, approximately a two-kilometre walk along the beach. And the sand along that beach, usually when you walk along sandy areas, you walk closer to the water and you find you've got an area of hard-packed sand. On this beach, it didn't matter whether it was <laughs> was dry or wet or anything like that. The sand was this soft and you sunk into it. And all up, there were five of us and we ended up, um, uh, a couple were just ahead of us and we all ended up walking single file in uh, each other's foot, footprints uh, just to uh, make sure that we were packing down the sand a little bit. It made it a little bit easier, but it was certainly pretty tough going. And if we'd waited longer, that was an interesting day because at the camp, you know, around 6am, you could really feel the temperature starting to bite in. So if we'd waited longer and if the, the cloud cover hadn't come over, that walk along the beach would have been a big nightmare for all of us, I think. But it certainly was an enjoyable walk anyway. Yes, it was. It was lovely. All right. The campsites. Now, we've mentioned this in the previous episode when we talk, when we interviewed Alison Buck from South Australian Parks, but this trail has, has actually spent $5.5 million in setting the trail up, and most of this money would have gone on the infrastructure for the trail. So the four campsites, the trailheads, um, and the um, the signage that went along the trail itself. These are without a doubt some of the best camping structures, so kitchen areas, toilets and campgrounds out of any of the trails I've ever seen around the country. They are excellent. They really are. Um, And as I commented in a previous uh, podcast when we did the interviews, they've been designed by people who have actually hiked and know what hikers like rather than just logistically saying, well, if we put all this close to each other, it'll be cheaper to construct. Um, they could have made the trail cheaper by putting everything closer together, but instead they've made it a much more enjoyable experience. And each of the camps has got its uh, own little personality. They're all quite different. Uh, so you can tell that you're in a different spot. It's it's not a, a matter of uh, a deja vu day after day. And, um, you know, that's kind of a nice quirky thing as well. So, yeah, they have put in a lot of thought. Uh, when we were talking to... Um, Alison, she did indicate that and also the thought in terms of uh, the trail itself weaving and winding along so there are surprises around uh, each bend and each corner. Now, one of the things that people want to do on trails is often have fires. Uh, And with this trail, there is only one possibility to have a fire, and that's at um, Tea Tree Campsite, which is your last campsite for this trip. Uh, however, this camp uh, fire area can only be used during the cooler months. So really between, I think it's the end of May from memory through till around about the end of September. And they do actually provide firewood uh, to set this up. Uh, and it's very well set up. 
But for us who are travelling in the middle of summer, I mean, you don't particularly want to have a fire in the middle of summer, uh, although for atmosphere it's quite nice. Uh, and certainly uh, the middle of summer can have an issue with total fire bans. Having said that, uh, the um, kitchen areas uh, and the facilities have uh, solar-powered lights, so you can, you know, gather around the kitchen area into the night and, uh, you know, have a bit of atmosphere and a conversation. Uh, it doesn't go, you know, completely pitch black um, when the sun goes down. So that's that's a nice thing too. Um, so you can uh, find opportunities to be sociable, you know, into the evening. Now, in talking about fires, one of the things we hadn't actually counted on uh, when we travelled between Christmas and New Year was a total fire ban. And certainly uh, it is a risk when you travel at that time of the year for a number of trails around the country uh, that uh, fires or fire bans can actually impact on what you're doing. And we got into camp on the first night uh, and uh, shortly after we arrived, a ranger came through and put up a total fire ban sign on ours and all the other campsites as well. Um, and what this meant is from 12 o'clock that night to 12 o'clock the next night, there were no fires of any type, including gas stoves. So basically, we ended up having to have uh, no tea or coffee the next day and no hot meals. And I must admit, I'd always wanted to try a freeze-dried meal without cooking it. Um, it's passable, but certainly you, you do like having that warm feeling in your stomach. Yeah, I'm not sure that I ever wanted to try one of those. Uh, now we've done it, I probably don't want to do another one. <laughs> okay, water carry. We actually got on the ferry at nine o'clock, uh, and that was interesting in itself, watching people drive into very small places <laughs> on, on a boat. Um, and sometimes reversing trailers. Yeah, that's a, you, you soon learn how, how, how good your parking skills are there. Um, but we, uh, by the time we got on the, the boat at nine o'clock, a one-hour trip over to the island, uh, offloading the boat and getting down to Kangaroo Island to Flinders Chase, the visitor centre, to start the walk, it meant we didn't start the walk till just on one o'clock. Uh, the the temperature that day was in the low 30s. It was a very hot day and there were no winds because we were inland and fairly sheltered. Um, so we used around about, three, or at least I used about three litres of water in the distance of 12 kilometres. Um, and I know for me, I tend to, uh, on during hot weather in summer, I'll go through about a, a litre of water an hour, which is about what I would have expected for that trip. Yeah, so a few of us did uh, did struggle along the way. Um, it, it was quite warm. And uh, interestingly, the first part of the walk out of uh, Flinders Chase uh, National Park Visitor Centre is very much the normal touristy bit of the walk. So there's a few kilometres there that you're, you're going the long way around. Um, it's interesting, it's lovely, and I'd suggest that you do it. Uh, but it was definitely uh, the long way round, uh, and uh, a couple of times we were tempted to uh, take a bit of a shortcut, but we didn't. Uh, it did mean that we, when we got to camp, uh, we were pretty exhausted. It was pretty hot, and uh, we had to sit down for a moment before we um, started to put the tent up. Uh, funnily, or not so funnily, uh, everyone else who arrived at camp felt the same way, except there was a couple who, you know, were absolutely 
sprightly, but it turned out that they weren't carrying anything and they were doing day walking and so they were about to be picked up and and taken back to some fancy accommodation somewhere. <laughs> you went through then and just mentioned about that first section of the trial and certainly for us, um, uh, when the trial just opened in 2016, um, they, apparently they had floods fairly early on and, and people who were booked in on the trial had to start in the opposite direction. So um, it would be it would have been a very different experience during the winter and spring as during the summer. Uh, but certainly there's something for it during each of the periods of the year, which we'll talk about it a bit later on in this episode. Now, we've talked a bit about the weather, and certainly the weather is going to vary. Uh, for us, we had nighttime temperatures of around about 12 degrees uh, to 14 degrees, so they were quite warm. Uh, we had daytime temperatures ranging from about 24 to about 32 degrees. Um, and you know, on the, on the second day, we did start very early, uh, expecting a hot day, and thankfully the cloud came over and we had a bit of very light rain. Uh, but it did, did keep the temperature down, uh, which was, as, as Jill mentioned, particularly something that was important on the beach walk. When you're walking along the cliff edge, particularly on the start of that second day, we had some very strong winds. And, you, know, <laughs> you, you felt like you were being blown, thankfully, inland in this case. Um, uh, but certainly, uh, if you've got a hat, you need to make sure you've got the, uh, the, it's tied down. Or if it hasn't got a strap, you just ha- can't wear the hat because it'll get blown off. Uh, so strong winds can be an issue, particularly on that coastal section of the trail. And there there were a couple of moments Tim was up ahead and uh, uh, thought, oh, that's a bit funny, he lost his footing a, w- a bit, but uh, had a closer look and he was uh, blown sideways by a gust of wind. So uh, that that was good warning for Kelly and I. Um, <clears throat> this walk was a, a – certainly for us uh, – uh, uh, this walk was probably a bit slower than we were used to. I mean, the distances weren't particularly big and the trail wasn't particularly difficult. Now, I think, as we mentioned, that this trail was really only a grade four walk rather than a grade three walk uh, because of the distance, not because of the difficulty of the trail itself. Yeah, and I think, you know, if uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but if you wanted to make the hike a little bit harder, you you can do it faster. Um you know, I would suggest that you not um, uh, cut off all of the side trips because there's some really interesting things to see, but you can move a little bit faster um, than the five days. I think that does depend on how busy the trail is and how many people are uh, up ahead in front of you. Um, so if that's something that you did want to do, then you you know it might be worthwhile talking to the national parks people about that. And we did have a couple who actually jumped ahead um, to do it in four days rather than in uh, the five that we were doing. But uh, having said that, they didn't do any of the side trips. They didn't go to Remarkable Rocks. They didn't do any of the uh, have a look at the seal colonies and do the do the additional side trips at all. So maybe they were planning on doing it afterwards. I don't know, but I think that was some of the highlights of the trip. So, I mean, what I would suggest is if you are doing this during the hot period of the year, and there's nothing wrong with that because one of the advantages of doing it at the time that we did between Christmas and New Year is there were only seven of us walking um, on the day we started. Uh, one person dropped out because she wasn't well. Uh, so really we had, uh, if you want a wilderness experience, during it during the hotter months of the year is a good time to do it. But if you are going to be doing that, you want to start early, particularly on the first day. So even either arrive the day before and start early in the morning, or else um, uh, start uh, 
get get the first ferry out in the morning, which means you're not sort of you're avoiding the the hottest part of the day as best you can. Mm. I think at best though that probably would have only if we started at one that probably would have only uh, started you off at you know maybe eleven thirty twelve o'clock at best. So you know if you do want to get going um, early, uh, the ferry the day before I think is the way to go. Now, one of the questions we often get asked is how much food should we be taking on these trails? And over the last two years, I've been keeping a very close record of uh, of the food we carry on multi-day trips. And partly this is to, to give me an indication of what is the right amount of food, uh, and in particular because of uh, the uh, long trip that I'm planning later on this year. I'm just trying to sort of gauge that sort of distance. Um, and for us... Um, in total, you know, the, the starting at lunchtime on the first day and finishing after breakfast on the last day, we carried in, uh, in total four full days of food spread over five days. And we are averaging uh, 680 grams per person per day of dry food. Now, I must admit, I think by the time I got to about day four, I was looking for jerky. Uh, I just had a craving for jerky, which is not unusual. Uh, and I could have done with a bit more than that. Um, but we didn't have lots of food left over, which is which has happened on previous trips. Yeah, pretty much we had very little left over. <laughs> Just kept passing my food to Tim. <laughs> um, now, as far as equipment's concerned for this, we, uh, we I will go through and post an equipment list uh, 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 up on the next week on this one, uh, just to give you an indication of what, what we generally carry at the moment. Um, but as far as equipment's concerned, there's two things I'd probably say. In most cases, if you're comfortable and sure-footed, leave the tracking poles at home. As I said, for me, I, wear, I use tracking poles because of my knees coming downhill, and this this wasn't particularly necessary on this trip. Uh, you know, so and if you, also if you haven't got a shelter that doesn't rely on tracking poles as your tent poles, you know, it's something I could have saved a bit of weight not carrying. The thing that I wished I had have carried on this trip was some additional cord. Uh, and that was really only for the first night at the Cup Gum, Cup Gum Campground, uh, where we're staying on the timber shelters. Uh, and it, they're some of the best timber shelters I've seen. They've got some very good tie-down points. But having said that, um, sometimes we ended up having to pull some cord off our packs, so we just needed that sort of roughly one metre length of cord just to get the right tie-down point. Yeah, so the the platforms were very nice and uh, very well spread out and multi-level and it was all very fancy. But, um, yeah, there was just a little bit of a practical thing that we ne- needed to have thought about. Um, easily solved, we just pulled a small piece of cord off each of the packs that we can, uh, we've now uh, put back on our packs. But, um, yeah, it was something we did need to think about. One thing I also suggest as well is when you are going anywhere near the, the timber camping uh, platforms is we always carry uh, three or four sand pegs with us. Uh, it helps in particularly loose, unstable conditions to tie the tents down, but it also means that the uh, the sand pegs can slot very easily without damaging the actual uh, platforms themselves in between the cracks in the timber. Uh, and I've actually shown this on a couple of photos on our written article of the, uh, the trail. Um, now... In relation to animals and plants, uh, Kangaroo Island has got a reputation of having some some pretty good plant and animal life, uh, and particularly, I suppose, koalas is one of those things that everyone expects to see. Um, 
It surprised us in some respect. I mean, it was the middle of summer and it is hot and animals generally aren't that stupid. They try and go get somewhere sheltered to avoid the heat as opposed to us who are hiking in it. So we did see a number of uh, kangaroos and wallabies that were hopping along the trail, mainly because it was easy for them. Uh, We did see a number of goannas. uh, And the goannas, probably the best way I can describe those is they farm the trail. They're obviously looking for food. Uh, The trail itself is fairly sandy in a lot of the area, so it's easy to dig. So there's a lot of holes along the side of the trail. And we came across a few goannas that were actually digging holes, uh, obviously looking for some food. And they were pretty impressive to see those. Um, Probably for us, the highlight was the koalas. And I must admit, Tea Tree Campsite, which was the last campsite we did, when we got in there, we thought, this just doesn't have a good feel, but it's at its best in the morning. It really is a spectacular sort of area in the morning. Uh, And certainly Kelly, who was uh, hiking with us, she was reading in bed uh, um, uh, on the last night um, and looked uh, looked out her tent and here's a koala sitting, peering inside to see what was going on before it ran up the tree. Uh, We certainly heard things crawling around in the middle of the night, thinking, oh, it's probably kangaroos, but they're actually koalas. On leaving the campsite the next day, we'd probably only gone probably less than half a kilometre out of the camp, and we came across a koala on the trail who proceeded to come and sit about one metre in front of me and just look at me before running off. And we've actually got a, a video of that on the, the trail write-up, uh, and as I've also posted it on Facebook as well. But have a look at the write-up, and it'll, it'll show you what that was like. Uh, but it was pretty, pretty. It was a pretty good moment and one of the highlights of the trip. Yeah, the the, um, the bird life on the trail was just um, amazing. The bird song uh, when we were approaching the camps, and uh, you know, as we're sort of having our dinner at night and first thing in the morning was just unbelievable. Um, I came away thinking, gee, there's a whole new world in that bird area that I need to get a bit more up to speed on. Um, it was quite varied and quite beautiful and very busy. One of the um, the sites, the campsites, has a lovely little uh, platform uh, off the communal uh, kitchen area that you can go up a few steps and you can uh, sit almost on a little deck and uh, you're partially in the tree tops and uh, just sitting there uh, at sunset is just amazing and uh, the bird life was phenomenal. One thing we were warned, were, were warned of, and I don't know what it is, um, we've done the Larapenta Trail, we've done the Overland Track, and now we've done the Kangaroo Island Trail, and we haven't seen a snake on <laughs> those three tracks. Yay! <laughs> Everybody else has. We, you know, we're travelling as a small group of two. You know, Big groups see them, solo hikers see them, we just don't. And we didn't see any snakes at all on this trip. Um, and in fact, talking to the other hikers, they didn't either. And this is not actually unexpected because snakes do, uh, they're cold blooded. They regulate their temperatures by uh, soaking in the heat to absorb the heat in. But when it gets too hot, they can actually overheat. So during the really hot days, they tend to go to ground. Uh, so it's not unsurprising that we didn't see any snakes. But we weren't traveling off trail. Uh, and certainly the park service don't want you going off trail. Uh, but yeah, no snakes at all, but there are certainly plenty there. So don't be surprised, particularly during the, the later spring and early summer, uh, that if you do see snakes. From a tourist and experience perspective, there's probably a couple of things I'd say. Uh, skip Admiral's Arch and the, um, the lighthouse. <laughs> 
And it's not because they weren't enjoyable, but for us, we wanted a wilderness experience. And certainly traveling at the time we did, we saw very few people, which was quite good. Um, yeah, but we went to, uh, Admiral's Arch, and there were buses and buses and cars <laughs> and tourists everywhere. And while the seals were really good to watch and it was really well set up, uh, it would have been something we would have been quite happy to do without. Both Jill and I have seen a lot of seals in our in our life, so it wasn't a new experience for us. And we did actually see seals along the rest of the trail, just not quite as close. So if you know, if you if you really want to see seals, fine, do the trip. But otherwise, uh, to Admiral's Arch. But otherwise, um, you'll see plenty along the trail during the right season anyway. Yeah. Having said that, though, the old um, uh, store building for the um, the lighthouse was definitely worth a side trip. And, uh, you know, that was quite interesting. And there were a whole bunch of seals uh, hanging around uh, near that and, and looking at how they, uh, in the early days, um pulled supplies up the cliff face was a really interesting uh, thing. So, you know, there are some snippets that are definitely uh, worth it. Uh, but I have to say, yeah, the Admiral's Arch was just a little bit too busy and a little bit too overpopulated with the humankind uh, for us. And that area that Jill was talking about that was quite interesting was Weir's Cove. And that was definitely worthwhile going to and visiting. And again, not too many people around, which was quite nice. Now, one other thing I'd say from a logistics point of view was um, we turned up, we um, went through and checked in at the uh, visitor centre. Uh, they issued us with our tags. Uh, so... We are certainly on the overland track. It wasn't unusual for a ranger to come and to ask to see your your permit, but we that didn't actually occur for us on this trail. But it doesn't mean it doesn't happen during the busier months of the year. Um, we had a they gave us a an iPad or an iPad looking device where we um, sat down and watched the, an introduction to the trail. Uh, sounds a bit hard to hear. Uh, but uh, and certainly that's possibly one area for improvement, but it gave us an indication of what to expect. Um, the hardest thing for us, I suppose, was um, trying to work out where the trail head. So as, just as you're entering into the visitor centre, there's a, a gate and a fence that says walking trails. You go through there and you're presented with um, a trailhead, which is more a generic trailhead. So there's no big hey, this is the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail with you know, massive great signboards. Um, and then there's a, a post with a series of trail markers on them, which include the Kangaroo Island Trail. And, and it took us a little while to, to realise what we had was a sign that said K-I-W-T uh, and then Rocky River. And um, we're thinking, where's Rocky River? Um, and that just confused us a bit. And the funny thing about all of this was that, you know, we were still just outside the Visitor Information Centre and we're thinking we've got the map in our hand. Uh, we're thinking, oh, my, if the whole five days is going to be this, you know, trying to work out where you're going and here we are, you know, a few hundred metres from the Visitor Information Centre and we haven't worked it out yet, um, you know, we're going to be in a little bit of trouble. I think that was probably the, the hardest bit, the first 500 metres. <laughs> Once we trusted where we were going, we were fine after that. <laughs> and the following days are very similar. You know, the last the the trip into the last campground is K I W T Grassdale um, rather than K I W T uh, Tea Tree Camp. 
So again, if, once you realise that you know, the it's different names, it's more about the name of the trail as opposed to the destination point, you're actually fine on it. Now, from our perspective, this was a, a really good trip. And we've mentioned this in the previous episode when we had the interviews on the trail. This trail is probably one of the best trails for people graduating to multi-day hiking. We certainly enjoyed it as experienced hikers. Um, it was a bit easier for us than that, than we were used to. Uh, Kelly, as someone who had never walked more than 10 kilometres in a day and never, never done multi-day hiking, even though she was carrying a day pack rather than a full pack, she found the distances manageable for her, even with a, uh, a foot injury. So it's, um, um, it's a, a good trip um, and it has plenty to offer. I'd certainly like to do it um, at different times of the year. Um, in in spring, I think the spring uh, wildflowers would be just stunning. We saw some uh, flowers out, but you could imagine just knowing the plants along the trail, you could imagine what it would look like. Um, you know, if you wanted to make it a little bit harder, as I said before, you could do it faster, um, and that's in, entirely doable. Uh, the thing that I really do like about this particular trail is anybody, almost anybody can, can do it. So, you know, we've talked before about you can go independently and carry your own pack. You can go in a group carrying your own pack. You can, uh, do the whole lot as Kelly did carrying a day pack and have your, uh, gear delivered uh, magically to each campsite for you to get there um, at the end of each day. Uh, there are a whole series of collection points just near each of the uh, camps for each day that you can be picked up from and you can be taken back to other accommodations so you can do it as a series of day hikes. And as, as John mentioned, you could actually do this trip faster, but if you're doing it in the middle of spring where there's likely to be, all the campgrounds are likely to be full, you may well have to either uh, check with the park service to see if there is a possibility, and that may mean that you might have to say, well, okay, well, I'll do two days at once, but you might have to go back to a campground because that's the only place you can get accommodation. So it's um, it's good to do a trail at a bit slower pace, um, it does force you to look around a bit more, uh, and certainly for us, um, um, you know, it was fine doing it at a slower pace because you know, we, we, we do trips that are fairly full on, and it's just nice to have a different sort of pace at certain times. Okay, that's all for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed, and it's also this is, this is the last of our episode on the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail. To get the best of this uh, series on this trail, listen to all the podcasts as well as read the written write-up to have a look at the photos, images, as well as a bit more detail. Yeah, I'd certainly like to go back to Kangaroo Island. Uh, it's our new favourite place. Uh, so make make the journey over there and do the Wilderness Trail. There's something for everyone and you'll definitely enjoy it. And certainly from my perspective, no ticks, or apparently no ticks that, that the ticks only bother the wildlife and not the humans. So that's a good enough reason for this to be my new favourite hiking spot. Our next episode in two weeks' time, uh, where we're back to normal, is titled 2018, The Future of Hiking. And we're going to be looking at things that are coming up as far as basic equipment and also changes to hiking practice over the next 12 months that we're starting to see more and more of. 
As always, this episode is available to listen to through our website, through SoundCloud, uh, through iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you have the time, please go through and rate us on iTunes. That's all for this episode. Bye from me. And bye from me.